0: Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll be wrapping up the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. Have you ever shopped for a used car? It's a challenging experience. Um, What do you look for? There are probably a few mechanics out there that that know exactly what to look for, for, but uh, I, I think for most of us, we walk onto the lot and we go, oh, That one's shiny, (laughs) right? I I like that color. I wanted four doors instead of two, or those tires look reasonably new. we look at superficial things, and it's really difficult sometimes to to know how to get under the hood and how to look at the the most important things, the fundamental things that make a car reliable. Same is true of the church. Uh, Some of you will be graduating soon. You will be leaving here, and you're going to have to go kick the tires on a new church. You're going to have to figure out uh, where should you be? How will you know? How do you you know if a church is healthy and strong? And when you find one, what can you do to help it become healthier and stronger? As Paul finishes up this book, 1 Corinthians, uh, he obviously has been concerned about this church. It's not a healthy church. He's been addressing issues all along. In chapter 16, he lays out, uh, finally, four marks of a healthy church. Obviously, there are more than four marks for qualities or characteristics that are addressed in the New Testament, But as we close out the book, we're going to look at four marks of a healthy church. And why don't you read with me, beginning in chapter 16 and verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send with them letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. First mark of a healthy church is it's a church that gives to the needy because God is a God who gives. And healthy churches reflect the grace of God. That is that God takes the initiative to meet our needs and to meet us right where we are. There's a particular context to the needs that are being met that Paul addresses in chapter 16 and I think helps inform our understanding this morning. We can understand if we go back to Acts chapter 11. This is the setting of the collection that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 16. Acts 11, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and he began to indicate by the Spirit there would certainly be a great famine over all of the world. This took place in the reign of Claudius, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. So around 40, 41 AD, uh, a famine hit the Roman Empire. It started in Egypt. There was a crop failure, and it spread throughout The entire inhabited earth, which is the word that Luke uses there in chapter 11. So the entire Roman Empire began to descend into famine conditions, particularly difficult in Judea because around 39 AD, uh, the emperor Caligula at that time made an edict that his statue would be set up in the temple area in Jerusalem. And the Jews revolted against this edict, and the way that they revolted is they refused to plant their own crops. So, when the famine began to spread, Judea was particularly hard hit because they hadn't planted crops in 3940. Christians living in Judea were in even a worse condition because they were ostracized from the Jewish community. So they couldn't receive any relief from the temple treasury or from Jewish friends or Jewish family. And so Jewish Christians living in Judea were in a very, very precarious situation. So as Paul traveled throughout the Roman world, he began to make a collection among all the churches for the relief of Jewish Christians who were living in Judea. Paul references this also in Romans chapter 15. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. I've been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, what Paul is laying out here to these churches in the Greek and Roman world is is very uh, countercultural. In the Greek mindset, you didn't give to people outside of your family that you didn't know, that you'd never seen, that lived in a distant country. You didn't give to people outside your family who could give nothing in return. The only reason you gave to someone is for what they could give back to you. Plutarch wrote, rulers should show philanthropy to their friends, and the friends should shower them with love and honor. In other words, giving was just a form of manipulation, it was just a social manipulation. Reciprocity was required. You didn't just give expecting nothing in return, but in fact, what you see in the New Testament is a very different ethic for giving. Jesus wrote, or Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6. He said, love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Jesus said, you want to be like your Father in heaven? This is what your Father is like. He gives to those who don't even say thanks. He gives to those actually who are evil and are his enemies. And he gives and he gives and he gives. God gives in a sense expecting nothing in return because really there's nothing that mankind can return to God. So you want to be like God. Jesus says this is the way that you give. And so Paul comes to these churches and he says they're are, there are brethren, part of your family. You've never seen them. You've never met them. You've never traveled to their homes. But they are in need. And so give and give expecting nothing in return because that's. What God is like. In chapter 16, and actually in 2 Corinthians as well, Paul lays out some very specific directives as to how we are to give. So I want you to read with me again chapter 16 and verse 2. Paul says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Now, the first characteristic of this giving, Paul says, is that it should be consistent. On the first day of every week, set the money aside. Let it be consistent. Let it be regular. Let it become habit. A couple years ago, I read a really good book. It's called The Power of Habit. Not a Christian book, but it really taps into how we work and how habits work and how habits are formed, whether they're good or bad, and how difficult habits are to break, whether they're good habits or bad habits. The power of habit is that it's something that we we begin to do and we no longer think about doing it. We don't expend mental energy. It's just habit. You just do it. And habits become character. Because we do them so frequently without thinking. They become natural. Now, I remember several years ago, I think I was in college. I uh, was taking like a, a time management seminar. And one of the exercises they had to do was uh, the obituary exercise. I don't know if you've ever done that where you write your own obituary. In other words, what do you want people to say about you when you're not there on that day? How do you want to be remembered by others? And Remember, one of the things I said in my little obituary was I, I want to be remembered as a generous person. That what became natural for me, just that I, I gave and I gave and I gave and I enjoyed giving because it was just a part of me and a part of who I am that's what Paul is urging. He's saying, make it consistent, make it habit, because habit becomes character. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. So what are we doing this morning? We're, we're sowing a thought. And what I'm exhorting you to do is then go and sow An action, and then sow that action, and sow that action, and sow that action, because it transforms your character through those little choices that you make that become habit. On the other hand, if you choose to not make giving a habit because it's your stuff, you will actually, paradoxically, end up becoming more insecure. If you say, well, it's my stuff, and I need to guard it and protect it for the provision of me and mine, then what you will discover, as it says in Proverbs, is wealth has wings. Wealth has wings. You grasp at it, but you can't grasp at it. It it may be your wealth, or it might be your time, or it might be your own body, as we talked about last week, which is going downhill, right? Seniors in college, even, there you are, right? We said you're at the crest of the hill, and here you go. You're descending, and you're descending faster and faster and faster, right? Could be your body, could be your time, could be your treasures. It's all fleeting. And so if you grasp it and try and save it and hoard it, you end up actually becoming less secure in life. And if you grasp it and hoard it, that's greed. Literally, greed or covetousness in the New Testament is the word to have more. Remember the rich man was once asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. (laughs) Okay. that's how greed functions it feeds on itself and the more that you have if you're clinging to it the more that you want you want just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and pretty soon your character is affected because paul tells us greed is actually idolatry because you're loving something other than more than different than god so if you don't give here's the connection it destroys your worship so in the sermon on the mount jesus said you can't serve two masters for you'll love the one and hate the other or you'll hate the one and love the other You cannot serve, then he applies it specifically, God and wealth. That's why the Bible talks so much about wealth, because it's one of those little things that works its way into our hearts and disrupts our love for God. You see, God doesn't, He doesn't really need our money, right? He doesn't, that's not the issue for God. God owns everything. Well, God created the universe, He can create wealth. God God doesn't need Our small little contributions. But what God wants from us is our very heart. And he wants all of it. And so the Bible frequently talks about learning to give so that you learn to be a giving person because that's what God is like. So Paul says first, give consistently. Second, giving is to be universal. So on the first day of every week, Each one of you is to set aside. Uh, This is not a habit uh, just for the rich, right? This is a habit for all, each one of you. Each one of you. You always have something to give, and your, your checkbook might be empty, but you could give time. You could give something. You could keep that habit, which performs your character going, by giving. Each one of you give. Not just those who feel like they have an abundance, but for all. Third, give proportionally. Each one of you, the first of the week, is to set aside and save as he may prosper. As God has given to you, spiritually and materially, so you share. Turn to the book of 2 Corinthians with me in chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's second letter, he addresses this same topic, this collection for the believers who are living in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, and verse 12. He says, For if the readiness is present, okay, the readiness to make the contribution, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. What Paul is saying is there will be times in your life when God prospers you materially and so you have more to share and so share in those moments. And times when you in fact are in need and others have the opportunity to share with you. So as you have been blessed, so share. As you have been blessed, share. Which means you and I won't always be giving the same amount. And that's all right. Some of you may say, wait, wait, wait. But we'll always be giving proportionally the same, right? Because we're required to give a tithe, 10%. So we all give 10%, right? That's the rule. That's the rule. Well, interestingly, uh, the New Testament neither affirms or denies the concept of tithing or 10%. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't say anything about it. Paul's directives are very different about giving. Tithing was a practice under the law, and here's how it worked. When you received anything material, whether it was coinage or money or crops, you took the first fruits, 10% off the top. First to the Lord. And that 10% was a reminder that God owns everything. That's what the 10% was about. Now that you've started giving with the tithe, then you keep on giving. There were free will offerings. There were offerings that were given to the poor. You were supposed to leave a margin around your field so that the poor could come and they could glean crops and feed their own families, And then every seven years, you had to forgive every debt that was owed to you. In other words, there were all kinds of elements within the law that were training the people to become a generous culture, okay, a culture of giving. And so we don't teach 10% because I don't think that's what Paul is teaching. What Paul taught was become generous people. Okay, become people who love to give, and give from the heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And I want you to take special note of this. He says, this is how God's grace was shown to these churches. Okay, Put that in the back of your mind. This is how God's grace was shown to these churches. That in great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. (laughs) Did you catch that? Here's how God showed his grace to these churches. He let them be poor and afflicted and suffering. And in the midst of that, he stirred up their hearts so powerfully through his spirit that they begged Paul that they could give. It, not out of their wealth, not out of, out of their superabundance, but out of their poverty. God demonstrate his, demonstrated his grace, that is, his transforming power in their lives in that they became people who loved to give. Even when they had nothing, they knew there was something that they could stretch and sacrifice and give. These were exceptionally generous giving people paul says to the church in the corinth says that's what we're going for and not not a specific certain amount but hearts that overflow in love for others and just want to give i love c.s lewis's quote he said i do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give i'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare <laughs> is not that good because we want to be stretched and we want our hearts to be stretched so that we learn to love giving. Fifth, our giving is to be joyful. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, because what God loves is God loves a cheerful giver. The word for cheerful is the word from which we get hilarious. God loves hilarious givers who just, they're celebrating and laughing the whole time while they're writing that check or reaching into their pocket and giving to others. So don't give out of compulsion or just a sense of duty or obligation, but out of a heart that is filled with the grace of God as you have received. That's why Paul says, when I come, don't make a collection. Do all the collecting before I come because I don't want to show up and people say, oh, oh, we better give because an apostle's here. Or better give a little bit more to show this apostle how truly generous I am. So he says, collect everything, because once I get there, I don't want you collecting in front of me, because I don't want it to be duty and obligation and guilt and shame. I want it to be out of joyful hearts overflowing with what you've received. Okay, and that really is the ethic that Jesus taught, right? Remember when Jesus was in the temple, right? And he was watching people give, and the rich people came in, and they gave out of their Superabundance, and the disciples were impressed with all of this giving. We're told historically that there were brass receptacles so when the coins went in clank, 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 clank. More coins more attention and the self-righteous people would stand there dropping in their coins enjoying the praise of men. The people thought wow they're so incredibly generous but then a widow slipped in and she dropped in two small coins that barely made a sound and Jesus said did you see that? Which they didn't. They didn't see it. They missed it. But Jesus saw it. And God sees because it is not the amount, it is the heart. And Jesus says actually, she gave more, which is heavenly economics, because God doesn't need our quantity, our superabundance of wealth, because He owns everything. What does He want? He wants hearts. And so this widow gave out of her poverty because she loved the Lord. She made a sacrifice and she gave. And so Paul is urging the Corinthian church give out of an abundant heart that has received from God. Now, practically, how can you apply this? I'll give you a couple of ideas. We have a fund, it's called the People in Need Fund. It's for people in need. It's really, it's really clever how we name that. Fund. I think it was a, at least a three hour meeting deciding on how we should name that particular fund. That's for people in need. So we have families periodically who uh, lose a job and are having difficulty paying bills, or there's a, a medical issue come, that comes up and difficulty paying bills, and we have a group of deacons and staff sit down with them and evaluate that need and give to those needs. Sometimes we have marriages that are struggling and they need to sit down with counselors. They have no money to get that counselor, and so stand with the family and we provide so if you would like to provide for families in this church who have particular physical and financial needs this is one way that you can give or you may be sitting there saying you know I actually don't have anything right now but I, I could use some help call the church okay? call the church particularly ask for Brad Evans he's our pastoral care congregational care pastor and he will meet with you and we will figure out how can we help you so if you want to write a check and donate, or if you need to draw from that fund, we have, I will, I will say, we have a super abundant, generous church. That fund has, has a nice amount of money in it right now for people who need help in this church, okay? Second opportunity, there are needs in our community. When We have several community partners. Here are a few of those, five of them specifically, Brazos. Church Food Pantry, Aggieland Pregnancy Outreach, Hope Pregnancy Center, SOS Ministries, the Bridge Ministries. If you would like to help out with these ministries financially or with your time, you can contact them directly or you can get on our website. You click under Serve and drop-down list will come up and you can plug into these ministries. You can give them to them financially or as Zach announced earlier, you can give some of your time. Now what, one of the reasons we partner with these groups is that they, they tie the physical and financial needs to spiritual needs. So they're not trying to just make sure that people are fed and warm, but also that they know their Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would say, if you really feel like God is calling you to meet physical and financial needs, make sure you do so in such a way that it's tied to the spiritual needs that really are transcendent. Third opportunity. There are persecuted Christians Throughout the world, in particular right now in the Middle East and in Africa, there are Christians that are losing all of their wealth, all of their property, losing their homes, and actually even losing their lives right now. Church in America, we need to pay attention to this because our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering and some are being martyred for their faith. One way that we can contribute to them is the Shalom Project. Breakaway set this up. It's a partnership that Breakaway set up with Voice of the Martyrs Ministry And with Elam ministry. Voice of the Martyrs you may have heard of before. Elam ministry is a ministry that's set up by some Persian pastors to help Christians in Iran that are suffering. This is a ministry we know Breakaway and we partner with Breakaway. And we know these two ministries that they are partnering with. So we know that it is a trustworthy way for you to make a donation to Christians that are suffering in the world. A Fourth, your family. And this actually, uh, in terms of priorities, in my mind, should be first. You have an obligation. You have family members that have physical and financial needs that you can meet. Give. Supply. Don't give and supply in such a way that you enable continuing foolish behavior. That's not what I'm talking about. But when you have genuine need within your family, I believe that as Christians, that is our first duty particularly when your family members are are not believers and you can meet a physical need or a financial need and in the process show them very tangibly the, the love of Christ for them. It's a wonderful opportunity. Whether they're Christian or not Christian, and your, your giving may shift around as, as family needs come up or there are no family needs and you really feel like God's calling you to move into the community or to give to the world, Those, need, those that, that'll move around, that'll shift around. But again, the issue is not how much you give, but that you let God transform your heart to become a giving, generous person. So healthy Christians and healthy churches are churches that are outwardly focused and giving to the world. Second, healthy churches respect their spiritual leaders. Read with me chapter 16 and verse 15. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prissa, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Submission is a difficult thing, isn't it? It's hard to submit. It's hard to show honor and respect. But I will tell you, one of the greatest marks of a healthy church is when they have servant leadership at the top and they are respectful and honoring of that leadership. What is a church's attitude toward its leadership? And is that leadership honorable? Is that leadership servant leadership, humble leadership? And do the people acknowledge that and respect that and honor that? In the first century church, you had had house churches, primarily. They didn't gather normally like this. They gathered house to house. And they would rotate to different houses. And there were often multiple house churches in any given city. And in those cities, they had elders and deacons. There was a structure for leadership there. The elders primarily took care of the spiritual needs and care for the flock. The deacons primarily, the physical and financial needs of the flock. And Paul says... Honor them. Respect them. Specifically, verse 16, he says, be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in work and labors. To to be in subjection means to submit. I think probably he's talking specifically about elders among these three men who came to visit him, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because he says, submit. Place yourself under their authority. Or as he says in First Thessalonians five, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Honor them, respect them, follow their spiritual leadership, knowing that even spiritual leaders in the church are not without accountability. Notice that if you look at the individual churches of the New Testament, they had a plurality of elders. Paul told Timothy to go and appoint elders. He didn't say go and appoint an elder, but go appoint elders. There was always a plurality. Why? Well, that's a safeguard. That's a protection for the church because there's authority with the group and there's accountability within the group. So if you want to find an unhealthy church, find a church that has one person that's in charge. If you want to find a church that is ripe, For a church split, find a church that has one person with all the authority and one person with all the power and responsibility. That's a church that will fall apart. Because that's not God's design. God's design is that there would be a plurality. Sharing of responsibility, sharing of authority, sharing of gifts, sharing of accountability. So here at Grace Bible Church, we have a board of elders, and we have great elders. The authority rests in them as a group. They speak with authority over our church when they speak with one voice. So, an individual elder does not have authority over the church, but a plurality. So, they have accountability to one another in terms of their their doctrine, in terms of their teaching, as well as in terms of their lives and their marriage. There is accountability. I'm not an elder at this church because I'm under authority, I'm under the authority of the elders. And I'm responsible for my teaching, for my doctrine, for my life, because we all need accountability. And God has placed in the church elders who follow the example of Christ as servant leaders. What is the attitude of the church toward its leadership? We also have deacons in this church who care for physical and financial needs. I I encourage you, thank your, your deacons. They show up before the service starts. They stay till after the service ends. They make sure the rooms are all in order. And ready for the worship service, they make sure that the bulletins are ready to be handed out. Even on rainy days, they make sure that the parking is as good as it can get here at Anderson, which is not good. But even in the rain, they're setting up cones so you don't get a parking ticket. They are taking care of the physical business of the church, and they do so throughout the week as well. Thank your deacons. Okay, honor your deacons and respect your deacons. Honor your elders. As some of you know, we, we kind of restructured the, the governance of this church and the elder board As we began to think about planning a third site, we realized, you know, we need to divide the labor a little bit more. And so what we did is we created campus teams among the elder board for each campus. So there will be a Southwood team, an Anderson team, and a Creekside team. Uh, Here's a picture of the elders who are here at Anderson campus, along with their wives, and some of them we got the kids up there too. Mike and Carolyn Gentry, Chip and Debbie Howard, Gary and Wendy McCord, Lance and Rhonda Sims, Brian and Kay Browning, and Andy and Joanna Rettenmeyer. Let me just tell you, one of the reasons I have stayed so long at this church is because we have great elders. Our church has gone through some very tough times in the past, and the reason that we survived those times and we have moved forward in a really powerful way is because, in my opinion, we have had godly servant leaders on our elder board. So I encourage you, I exhort you, thank these men for their sacrifice and their service. You have no idea. These guys don't get paid. Our elders don't get paid. Our deacons don't get paid. But they put in a lot of time. Serving the families of our church. Got a picture of our deacons as well. Here at Anderson. There's our deacons. Um, now I. I, <laughs> I confess. I, just, I didn't have time to collect all their pictures. But then. I, I, yesterday I was thinking. You know but this is really a good representation. Because. Deacon means servant, and I know each of these men, and they are servants. Uh, They wouldn't necessarily want their pictures put in front of you. In fact, our elders didn't really want me to put their pictures in front of you because they don't hold the position so that they can have power or honor or prestige. They hold the position so that they can serve. So our obligation as a church is to honor them and respect them. Second, pastor-teachers. We honor the pastors and teachers. I mean, we honor our elders and our, our, our governing authority. We support and provide for our pastors and teachers. And I acknowledge that this uh, could sound all very self-serving coming from me, so I'm just going to let Paul speak on my behalf. Look at chapter 9, 1 Corinthians Corinthians 9, and verse 7. First Corinthians 9, verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For as it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That is your pastor-teachers. And I just want to say thank you, church, because uh, on behalf of of all the pastors here on staff, we feel taken care of by our church. Thank you. We feel abundantly blessed by you. Uh, Even when there was a recession a few years ago, we didn't have to cut any staff. We didn't reduce the salary of any staff because we have such a generous and giving church. And so, again, I just want to say thank you. We feel very well taken care of by this church. I do have one request, though. If you would do this for us, would you please pray more for our staff? Pray for us to be guarded against Satan's attacks on our families and on our marriages. Pray for our physical health. Pray, pray, pray for us. And in particular, pray that our spiritual lives don't just become part of our jobs. Hey, if I, If I could ask you to pray really strong one thing for us, pray that our spiritual lives don 't just get get absorbed into what we do but but our love for Jesus is our love for Jesus and, and what we do for a job is just an overflow of the fact that we are deep in our love for Jesus because that 's the risk that we always face. you know we can just flip open the word to teach the word we 're just studying the Word for what we 're giving to others, not for the fact that we need to be fed by the Lord and need we need, to, we need to, to be deep in the Lord just because God loves us too, and we love God. Not because we, we get a paycheck for this. And so pray that we would be protected from that. Third, missionaries. Healthy churches care for and support and supply their missionaries with what they need. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. There are actually three men Paul talks about here in chapter 16 who are missionaries. There's, there's himself and Timothy and Apollos. These are men that are not from Corinth. That's not their home. That's not where they they stay, but Paul planted the church in Corinth, and he taught the church in Corinth, and then he left, and he went and planted other churches, and then he would visit the churches he had planted to strengthen them, and he would send Timothy to help plant church and help strengthen a church. Apollos would go around and he would help plant and strengthen churches. That's what these men did. They moved from place to place to place, extending the reach of individual churches. And Paul says, what I want you to do for us is I want you to send us on our way. And that word for send is used in the New Testament of what the church does for its missionaries. It it identifies them, like the church in Antioch prayed in the Spirit poured out his wisdom upon the church and they said, let's set aside Paul and Barnabas and several others for the work that God has called them to do because we can't leave our homes here in Antioch, but they can. And so what can we do for them? We can give them money and we can give them supplies and we can give them prayer and we can give them provisions for their journey and we can keep in touch with them and we can send people to them to refresh their spirit, as he says in chapter 16. Healthy, strong churches send missionaries. You go to a church and they don't talk about missions a lot, that's not a healthy church. You go to a church and they're not talking about the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, that's not a healthy church. Healthy churches are churches that are looking outward to their their neighbors and their friends and their family, to their community, but also to the world. Healthy churches are, are giving churches, outwardly focused, Thinking about the gospel. How can you apply this specifically? Well, if you are in a a small group here at Grace Bible Church, you already have a missionary. You just may not have known it. If you're in a home church group, or you are in a grow group in college, you're in a Bible study, you're in an adult Bible fellowship that meets on Sunday mornings, you already have a missionary. And so your job this next week is to talk amongst your group about your missionary Bring in the letters, find out what their needs are, pray for them. Maybe they need uh, some extra financial support, collect that for them. Maybe they need just their email box filled with support and encouragement and and, and verses that remind them that they are loved and that you are thinking about them and paying attention to their needs. Think about it, when when folks leave this place, they're making huge sacrifices for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means we have an obligation to them. They are leaving behind family. Kids may not get to see their grandparents or aunts and uncles for years. They're leaving behind friends. Maybe leaving behind jobs that they were comfortable in, that they loved. They're having to go around and ask people to support them, which is a hard thing to do. Their children are being raised in a foreign culture. They're leaving their own culture. They're having to learn a new language and all the stress that that entails. And figuring out how their kids can be educated. And where will their kids have friends? They're Making incredible sacrifices for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We need to be aware of that. Pay attention to that. We have an obligation to them. They're going out. Well, we better hold the rope as they go out. So you need a missionary that you know and that you're corresponding with, and that you're praying for and supporting and giving to. If you're not in one of our small groups, and you want your own missionary, here's how to get one. Email the church, globaloutreach at grace-bible.org, and we will get you connected with somebody who can be your missionary. Because healthy churches send. Now third, healthy churches guard the essentials of the faith. Verse 13, Paul says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. The church is under attack. The church has always been under attack. The church will always be under attack. Jesus said, don't be shocked. If the world hated Jesus, it will also hate the church. There will be times and places when the church is more or less received. But generally speaking, the church is under attack in many forms. Sometimes it is persecution. We usually think physical persecution. But historically speaking, physical persecution has been the the least difficult for the church. When the church has been physically persecuted, the church has almost always grown in its size and strength. Now, cultural and social persecution, the church has not done as well with. A Pressure to compromise on doctrinal or moral issues. Don't talk about sin. Don't enter into and engage in a discussion of sexuality in the culture. Don't, don't talk about the exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ one way. That's not tolerant. There's pressure on the church culturally and socially. And there's, there's pressure to compromise and give in. That's a form of persecution the church will always face. Division. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. People lining up with different spiritual leaders and becoming divided. People hurting one another and not forgiving and reconciling. Immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Immorality that has gone undisciplined in the church. I I have seen churches wither and die because there was immorality. The church knew about it and the church leadership didn't address that. And the churches wither. Healthy church is a church that addresses sin in its midst. Legalism. That's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians, because the gospel was being polluted. If you want to fight and divide about something, let's fight over the gospel. If you're adding to the gospel, Paul, remember, even gets in Peter's grill and says, look, it's faith and faith alone. You can't add works to the law. And your behavior makes it seem like there's something other than the work of Christ that we're trusting in. We're not trusting in our own works, just Jesus. Legalism adds works to faith. There are other forms of false teaching that come up inside of the church. Men and women, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And Paul says, "Be on the alert." Same thing Peter told the believers, 1 Peter chapter 5, "Be on the alert." Why? Because your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion and he is seeking to devour you and destroy you. So pay attention, be alert. Know what you believe, know why you believe it. Cling to the essentials of your faith. Second Thessalonians chapter two. He says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The traditions Paul is talking about are the fundamentals of the faith. Right? The inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity substitutionary atonement. Jesus died for our sins on our behalf. Faith alone receives that gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Know these things and cling to them. Look at, look at the, the, the liberal church in North America. It's dead and dying. Look at the liberal church in Europe. It's dead and it's dying. Great, wonderful, beautiful buildings, but no one comes. Why? Because they can't speak with power because they've abandoned the word of God. You want to find a strong and healthy church? It is teaching, teaching. The word of God. The whole council in it is not compromising on these fundamental truths. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or if I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. The Philippian church was a healthy church. Philippian Church was a sending church. The book of Philippians is a thank you letter from Paul the missionary to his sending church. And what he's saying is, thank you for participating in the gospel. Thank you for sharing in the work of extending the gospel through me, but thank you for standing and preaching the gospel where you are as well. You are striving for the gospel together with one mind. That's a healthy church. Fourth, healthy churches love one another. Verse fourteen, let all that you do be done in love that 's a pretty simple verse isn 't it? <laughs> all that you need to do this week is just do everything in love that 's all It'd be an easy week, right? Let all that you do be done in love. Why? Because love is supreme. He says this is the supreme thing among the virtues there 's the big three faith hope and love, but Someday hope will be fulfilled and faith will become sight and we'll see God. But love, love is supreme. Love is greater even than all these spiritual gifts and these talents that you've been given. It is love. And love is not a a sappy, sweet emotion. Love is an intentional choice to move out into the lives of others and to give and to serve. Paul says in John chapter 13, or Jesus says in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This way, love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This way, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what had he just done? He had just shown them this is love. He put on the robe of a servant, he got down on his hands and knees, and he wiped the dirt from their feet. The creator of the universe. This is love. Because fundamentally, this is what healthy churches do. Healthy churches look outward. Healthy Christians look outwards. Their needs are met in Jesus, and so they have the resources to look outward. And the fact of the matter is, we can change certain behaviors in our lives and we can change church programming, but what we need is for God to transform our hearts to be people who are not just thinking of ourselves, but we're thinking of others. Now, I remember when I left this place, I graduated from AM and Moved to another city and I began kicking the tires on new churches. I began to shop and it was a very frustrating experience. I went from church to church to church and I kept feeling like, you know, this is not a friendly church and this is not a friendly church and these people aren't reaching out to me and nobody's initiating with me and I'm poor. They should ask me to lunch and pay for my lunch and nobody's really coming after me and serving me. And I mean, I, I will confess, I was starting to get kind of grumpy and on Sunday mornings I got to the point where I'm like, do I really want to get out of bed? Do I really want to try this again? And I will say, I don't think the voice was actually audible, but there was, there was something that went off in my mind. I think it was the Lord. And he said, what about you? Why don't, why don't you take the initiative? Why don't you walk in the door and, and you initiate? So I felt adequately guilty <laughs> over that. I went to church and I initiated. I initiated conversation and I invited people to lunch and I invited them to my home and I found a place to serve and I began to invest in uh, the youth in that church and the families and I began to see, you know, there is community here. It was a good church. It had a lot of these fundamentals. It's a church that taught the word and they, they talked about the Great Commission. They gave. They were a generous church. They were actively involved and I realized in that moment, you know what? No perfect churches. I've talked to student after student after student who leaves here and they get grumpy. I'm just telling you. No perfect churches. So you look for these fundamentals, and then you step in and you see, how can God use you to make this a stronger, healthier church? What are the gifts and the talents, the abilities, your time, your maybe meager donations initially, that that you can get into the life of this church and help this church become a healthier, stronger church, a church that is outwardly focused because you are one who steps in and creates a model of that a model of the very love of God and his grace for all peoples. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us into people who are not content with uh, taking and taking and taking, but we, we long to be like you. We want to be generous people. And Father, we confess that we cannot transform our own hearts, but you can. Make us into people who just love to give. And so I pray, Father, you would, challenge us, convict us, and change us through the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week going out and blessing others. We'll see you next week.